friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. This week, we have a show dedicated to the sad topic of infertility. It's National Infertility Awareness Week. So many men and women are yearning to become parents. Even up to one in eight American couples, according to the stats that I've read, are hoping against hope to become parents and struggling with that sadness of not being able to make that a reality. We're going to delve into this topic in a few different ways. We're going to look at cutting-edge ways that NAPRO technology or natural procreative technologies are is making headways into helping women achieve pregnancy in a way that aligns with women's healthy bodies and also with our faith. We're going to listen to some words of wisdom from Marie Meany, who has personally struggled with infertility and written a beautiful book. But first, I'm happy to have my TCA colleague, Lee Sneed, with me to share her own journey, which started with infertility, but uh, resulted in the adoption of four beautiful children. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thanks, Gracie. Glad to be here. So good to have you. We're having this entire show this week dedicated to infertility the difficulties of, of infertility and how to navigate um, that that really, really difficult thing. I, I didn't know how difficult it was personally um, until I went to adopt our, our fifth child. I went to China to adopt our fifth child uh, with my sister-in-law and my daughter. My husband couldn't come. And we I went in an adoption group. There were 12 couples and all adopting mm-hmm. besides me and I think one other family every one of the couples had been infertile for many years and had been longing for children for many years and I was able to share I've well, I shared many many days of, with them in a very intense process of adoption and I think I was able to understand a little bit of their their terrible pain you know drawn out over sometimes 12 or 15 years in some of these couples lives and Absolutely. and then share their joy <laughs> in the adoption and for me, adopting my little girl, when I got to see her for the first time and hold her in my arms, I was over the moon with joy. I it's it was uh it was an experience that was in many ways deeper than when I gave birth and held my children in mm-hmm. my arms because she seemed so much more miraculous. That this child who had no relationship to me genetically, who by no stretch of the human imagination belonged in my arms was in my arms was mine to love and to cherish Mm -hmm. and to fall in love with and that that has always remained this tremendous miracle for me uh, in a way that my biological births haven't been miracles so I believe and I brought all that up because I was I watched them receive their children receive these Mm -hmm. little girls they were almost all girls one boy and, and 11 girls receive those babies and the joy I saw in those faces the resolution of decades sometimes of pain and longing and desire and frustration and uh it's one of one of the prettiest things i've ever seen it'll it's imprinted on my on my retinas forever uh and i was so honored and and delighted to share that 
with with these beautiful people that went to adopt. So yeah, I always liked that. I mean, not that I experienced it, but that aspect of um, international adoption where you go in these groups and then you have sort of these connections that last forever because you went through this. These people sort of strangers, and then you go through this insanely intimate experience with them. Yes, <laughs> and you know, like you're saying, like you saw all these things, the expression on their faces, and yeah, it's amazing. I think that the uh, the call to adopt is sometimes conflated with infertility. And obviously that wasn't the case for you. I think it's important to let people know that I think in the, in the Catholic infertility world, there's a lot of emphasis on adoption as well as obviously NAPRO technology and things like that. Um, but, you know, some people just, they don't feel called to adopt. That's not, it's not how they pictured building their family. And you I know, think, I'm glad you um, mentioned that, they, Lee. And uh, now when I talk about adoption, I talk about it as a vocation. Uh, mm-hmm. And and for me, it was a process of discern. Right. For me, it was a process of discernment with my husband, of course, along for the ride. I was the instigator, I think, of most of this. But it was a, a process of discernment that I felt very strongly like that is something that I took to my prayer, is something that I worked on with the with my spirit with the priest who was my spiritual advisor at the time. And very much as a as an idea that God was putting this beautiful opportunity in, in front of my eyes and into my heart and should I should I take it? Should we as a family take that opportunity? Is that is that how you right. felt about your adoptions? Yes. I mean, it wasn't, it probably didn't take as much discernment because we were without any children. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, we weren't sort of adding to the litter um, <laughs> in, 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 the, in the first case. Well, but, but uh, again, yeah, Lee, you've adopted four times. So maybe you say, well, the yes, first time absolutely. it was, yes, definitely did it okay, again. so we <laughs> want a baby. This is a way to get a baby. But, you know, then you kept doing it. So adoption. We did. We kept doing it. Yes we've had really I mean it's it's definitely even adoption is can be painful especially domestic adoption because you're dealing with a lot of brokenness and loss when you talk about the adoption triad the child and the biological parents and the adoptive parents and everyone's going through their own thing and you know it's a very it can be very raw and that alone is is a cross on top of say like you know your years of infertility but at the same time it's for us, anyway, it's been a real gift, actually. I mean, for one thing, if it, you know, like you were saying, that this miracle of your little girl when you held her in your arms, that's the way I feel about my children. And especially now in my late 40s, when if that window had ever been open for me, is you know, probably closed. The fact that, I mean, I would never go back in time and, you know, like have gotten pregnant because I think I, I mean, I just wouldn't have these children. Mm-hmm. And I just can't imagine my life. With, like they, they were meant to be mine. Mm-hmm. And, and sense as, as Christians I, we we see these children as created for us right I mean and I don't know I don't yes. I don't know if that is going to shock people who aren't adoptive parents and they're going <laughs> to say you know God doesn't make orphans for people you know they don't make but but I know that adoptive parents in general feel have that sense that God that God creates souls for each other like maybe I know that God created my husband for me <laughs> and mm-hmm. me for him no, absolutely right? he planned that feeling. from all time and also our adopted children are planned for us from all time that doesn't negate as you say the 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 incredible valor and contribution and and importance of the birth parents that I pr- I personally right. pray for my child's birth parents every single day and yeah. and also her birth grandparents any birth siblings she might have her cousins and her right. exactly. and her aunts and, and I think in that same vein I think that sometimes I'll hear people you know, say like once people sort of you know, submit all their paperwork and you're waiting, you're either waiting for a match or you're waiting for your matched baby to be born. Um, sometimes they'll start to treat uh, the expect- expecting adoptive mother at, like as if she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that's always, or compared that waiting time to the nine months of pregnancy. And to me, that is always really just kind of sat 
strangely with me. It, it, like it sort of takes away from the experience of the biological mother and the, the gift that she's giving and or almost it's like you have to make it like pregnancy to make it real parenthood or something. I don't know. It's just this weird conflation of the two things, I think, is a real misunderstanding of what adoption is. Lee, you uh, went through, you have, you went you through many to... years of infertility that I'm sure were very, mm-hmm. I don't know how many exactly, but I'm sure that that was um, a tremendous cross for you to bear, you and your husband. Um, I can yeah. only imagine the frustration of the month to month thing as yes, we as women know absolutely. that it's a, it's a monthly it's a moment of in the month that ha- that unfortunately recurred many 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 times for you you become very aware that pms and pregnancy symptoms are pretty close you know <laughs> i mean you didn't realize it obviously before but then once you're you know sort of intentionally like waiting for you know your visitor not to arrive mm-hmm. um you, you know you pick up on every little thing and we did and we were young and you know everyone was you know a lot of our peers were having their first children and it just seemed to be happening you know it just happens so much easier for everyone else and i think again like we were in our 20s and that's not usually the story you hear it's usually someone who's you know has age also as a factor were you ever so tempted think, were you ever tempted to go down the technological road it must have been a, oh, a absolutely. temptation before we saw before we saw uh, dr hilgers in nebraska we um had just you know seen a local fertility doctor going in you know with our you know we had to gird our loins because they want to especially as a 26 27 year old healthy female you know they had unexplained infertility they couldn't figure out you know why i wasn't getting pregnant they were desperate to enroll me in the ivf program Mm -hmm. and i can imagine going in there and thinking i know this is wrong this is against my beliefs but i'll just do it and i won't think about it again well or you'll ask or you'll ask pardon later you know you'll be sorry for it but but you'll have your beautiful baby exactly exactly and god will know and and god will have mercy and he'll forgive and 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 i have complete sympathy i wanted a baby yes and and i have complete sympathy for the people who've gone down that road i I, I I don't condemn. I can't condemn because I no, the longing is tremendous and the desire is so huge and and you feel that your heart will break if, if your yeah. arms aren't filled with a baby and and, and your heart you will just break. Want it so badly. Yeah. yeah. And so we eventually. I mean, there was just one day when actually we were meeting with the doctor and he basically kind of like yelled at me for you know not doing IVF. And he even said something like, I'm not taking lives, I'm making lives. And I was like, yeah, I think this isn't the right fit for us. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I... Uh, well, and that's I very, try- that's a very interesting point, right? In, in, the, in mm-hmm. the assisted and the, in the technological assistance programs, you creating life away from... Yes. Away from the natural source of life, taking all <sighs> yes. that into your hands. We only have a couple minutes left, Lee, but what would you say mm-hmm. to people... Um, in your position who, I mean, in your former position, your former position of, mm. of being infertile, uh, what would you say to people who are m- maybe thinking adoption might be for them? I think talk to families who have adopted. I think that's the, that's what we did. That's what we do now. I, I feel like it's sort of a, a little unofficial ministry that my husband and I have. People get sent to us, like, you know, people say, oh, you should talk to this needs, you should talk to this needs. And we do, we we, my husband and I it. too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so we have had, you know, so many positive experiences um, talking to couples. And like I said, like we even had one couple who were suffering, you know, greatly from repeated miscarriage and they were talking about it and they just, you know, they had had some negative experiences with someone 
in their family who had been adopted and they just weren't sure it was right for them. And when I said to them, you know, it's, it's okay. You don't have to, you know, just because you're Catholic and, you know, having fertility issues, you don't, you're not obligated to do this. And it seemed it could be a real relief. And I think they're still discerning, but I think that just talking, you know, to and visiting and seeing the adoptive family in action and seeing the kids, uh, knowing what your options are in terms of private foster to adopt, uh, international adoptions, which are hard to come by, I know these days, you know, and I think reading Russell Moore's books, reading um, Gil Mylander's book on adoption is really beautiful. And just open your heart and pray and just, just see where, you know, the Holy Spirit takes you. Well, I'm glad, uh, Lee, that the Holy Spirit has taken you to your beautiful family of your four adopted children. One is a oh, baby, which, mm-hmm. uh, like all babies, but I don't know, this one's special, is adorable. <laughs> He is pretty cute. He's pretty darn cute. It's a good cute. thing, too. Yeah. Because <laughs> he as he's getting more mobile, he's getting pretty ornery. Oh, so well, his cuteness is saving that's him. Lovely. Yeah. That's lovely, too. Well, thank you, Lee, for joining me today. Yes. And thank, thank you for you. sharing your experiences. Absolutely. Bye-bye. This next up, I'm joined by a good friend of mine. She and I have had children together in school for many years. She is uh, a wonderful wife and mother and um, a wonderful friend. And she does something that's very, very interesting and very meaningful. And she has wonderful stories about the work that she does. So in this uh, week, which is National Infertility Awareness Week, I wanted to have her on the show to tell us about her work. Her name is Lupita Carral, and she is a fertility care practitioner, and she works uh, specifically with something called NAPRO, or Natural Procreative Technology. It's a fascinating topic, and I can't wait to hear all about it. Welcome to the show, Lupita. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me, Gracie. This is just amazing to have the opportunity to share with all the people that is listening to us today. And uh, I think that information is crucial to make decisions. So I just love the idea of sharing information with with everyone. Well, Lupita, you know, and many people out there know that many men and women struggle with infertility, many couples. Infertility is defined as um, the inability to become pregnant for a couple after one year of trying or having having relations for one year. Of course, lots of things go into fertility. Um, In a for a woman her age so after the age of 35 fertility drops but there are also there are also lots of other reasons things like genetics general health status uh, obesity for instance is bad for fertility Um, there's all sorts of reasons that women might not be fertile there's also reasons men might have trouble with their fertility Um, but in short many couples find themselves um, in that sad place where they're married and they they think that something that happens so naturally that maybe something they've been avoiding for years right is going to happen for them too and this beautiful miracle of a baby is going to suddenly appear on the ultrasound screen and it and it just doesn't happen and it's a very sad thing many people from there go on to things like IVF which um, as Catholics we know is a is is a is a misuse of technology because it creates babies um, in, in test tubes and in, in petri dishes in, in ways that we're not we're not supposed to do that we're supposed to co-create with God not just create um, and um, you save people from going to IVF so I wanted to hear about you what um, tell us what you do in that prone who your uh, who your tell us about a classic couple that comes to you yeah well there's actually like three different types of couples that could come to us fertility care practitioners because we have couples uh, that are trying to get pregnant then we have women that are avoiding a, a pregnancy and then we have 
a third um, type of woman that come to us because they are training to monitor their fertility because they have a gynecological concern. So um, the Creighton model system, which is the NFP method that I personally teach, has these three types of um, application. And uh, the majority of, of my clients are unfortunately infertility couples. Like you were um, saying before, the the success rate with um, IVF is not very, I mean, not, not as good as the numbers that we can give to our couples because IVF usually gives around 33% chances of conceiving. Our rates go up to 80% chances of conceiving without miscarrying. So the difference in the numbers there is just huge. And uh, to me, the most important thing is that we are really solving the problem. We are not just trying to get a final product, which in this case could be a baby. We're really trying to find the cause of the problem. And that's why women end up getting pregnant because we fix the problem. We get them to this um, health status that is normal. Fertility is a sign of, of health in a woman. And if that's not happening naturally, it's because we have to solve a problem. And we know we need to find out what the problem is in order to, to solve it. Mm, that's um, a very that's, that's very interesting, Lupita, because um, generally when you think of solving a problem, like you solve it with IVF, you're right. You're you're looking for a product. You're going, you're you're looking at the problem and you're saying, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do all these all these um, invasive and complicated and technological things because in the end I'm gonna have a baby and you're or maybe have a baby, thirty three percent of the time but you're saying no let's treat the woman let's treat her as a, a, a woman who ought to be able to get pregnant if she's healthy enough and and if things can be made to work well that's a very beautiful way to approach to approach this problem of infertility in my opinion and then we also have the moral part of everything right and we totally realize that we're talking about life and uh and other human beings so the, it's just the approach that we have is completely different because i mean infertility doctors are trying to give you that final product we try to solve the problem i mean again first to find what the problem is and then solve it the consequence that final product the baby um but yeah it's completely different it's just amazing to be able to help all these couples and to yeah just that to help them see the truth of everything in a natural way without exposing them to all these side effects that all artificial hormones have, which are, I mean, I'm sure that you have talked about that in one of your programs, but it includes cancer, strokes, I mean, all sort of terrible things. And it's just so sad to know that these women end up making decisions without understanding the complete consequence of what they're about to do. So let's uh, drill down on that a little bit. And you, what you're talking about is perhaps a, a woman who may be in her 30s or even younger, who is possibly not ovulating uh, properly or, or not ovulating in a normal way, in a way that can lead to pregnancy, right? Or perhaps a woman who's maybe gets pregnant, the baby is fertilized. Uh, I mean, the egg is fertilized and you have a very early pregnancy, but she then she doesn't have the hormonal response that allows her to keep that pregnant and go on to week five and week six and week seven. Um, are these the kind of scenarios that you treat with NAPRO? Yes. In a lot of cases, the problem is with progesterone. We call it the pro-life hormone because before the placenta is like fully developed, 
the life of the baby depends on good progesterone levels. So if, and unfortunately, that's something that in general, OBGYNs, they don't even check progesterone levels in a pregnant woman unless she's already bleeding. And by then, probably already too late to, in order to save the life of the baby. We do the opposite. So we start checking all those progesterone levels before she conceives. And if, if it's necessary, all these NAP productors would start treating her before that moment. So by the time she's pregnant, all her progesterone levels are where they are supposed to be. And then they will continue to monitor that pregnant woman until they are completely sure and feel confident about the progesterone that she's naturally producing. If that progesterone is not produced naturally, then they add some types of supplementation and they can use either shots or vaginal suppositories. There's like different protocols depending on, on the levels of progesterone during these first weeks of pregnancy. And in some cases, they need progesterone the entire pregnancy because at the beginning, of course, the, the purpose is to keep the baby alive, but then they want that baby to be a full-term baby. And uh, the, the experience has been that when progesterone levels are low during pregnancy, then babies could be delivered early. And of course, nobody wants to have a baby in the NICU, and that means a lot of possible terrible things, and it could it could be bad to be there. Lupita, on how early that baby born. Uh-huh. Lupita, these things even especially from a medical perspective seems so natural and so simple as compared to something like those um, assisted reproductive technologies like IVF and insemination and all the different things that they do. Why do you think that there has been a lag in, in offering women women these and couples these natural alternatives, these things that are so much more simple and so much more in tune with the natural rhythms of, of our bodies and with the natural way that we produce babies? Why do you think there's been like a, a, a resistance or a lag? Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting question. And uh, at the same time, like hard to to answer because, in my opinion, in a lot of a lot of times, the reason is just that the doctor probably doesn't have the tools to help that woman, just because they didn't learn it when they when they when they were at school. So everything in our culture is pushing us to contraception. So the only thing that they can prescribe to a woman, no matter if she has heavy menstrual bleeding, polycystic ovaries, if she wants to get pregnant, if she doesn't want to get pregnant, whatever, the only thing that they will prescribe will be the birth control pill. And we all know that it doesn't solve the problem. It's just like a band-aid. But with the time, of course, the problem usually gets worse. And then after years of having that problem untreated, then we have a woman that cannot conceive. So the next step would be to offer her IVF. There's a ton of money in IVF. Those IVF cycles are tremendously expensive. Many insurance companies pay for it. There's a lot of money in infertility care. Yeah, that's totally true. And then, yeah, so we, we have a... A very different approach in every sense. So and if you if you important. if there are listeners now and they're they're thinking to themselves about maybe an infertility problem that they have or their daughter has or a cousin or a neighbor and they say to themselves, I have never heard of this and I'm sure my, my daughter or my niece has never heard of this either. How do you get in contact with this kind of fertility care and avoid the road 
to IVF and, and all those other assistive technologies? Yeah, so that's very easy because um, in a lot of times, the only thing that women need is just to understand the menstrual cycle. So 30% of the time, just using this NFP method and some of the natural supplements that we can recommend to our clients solves the problem. And then when that's not enough, then we would refer them to a NAPRA doctor and then they will do they would do blood work or an ultrasound and then they'll start uh, with a medical protocol. But a, a lot of times just using a super simple and cheap chart is enough to help them. And uh, I teach everything I do is, is virtual. So I, I have always done long distance teaching, even before the pandemic. I am very glad to be able to help women all around the world to to have babies. <laughs> so at the end, we'll we'll give out your information so they can reach you. But you're not the only person who does this. What what is the what is do you belong to an association that that women can act that couples can access? There's an institute in the United States called Saint Paul the Sixth Institute. That's in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's like our headquarters. And from there, we have fertility care, fertility care practitioners all around the world. So if you go to that website, uh, and the website is popepaul6.com, um, and then after he was canonized, they changed the name. But uh, if you go online to that website, you can look up for um, fertility care practitioners. So we only have a couple of minutes left, Lupita, but tell me the story. Tell me a great story about a couple that came to you and, and how how that worked out. Tell me tell me a wonderful story for our listeners. Well, I think that a very special story is this woman. Uh, she was going to a friend of mine who's a life coach and a psychologist because this woman had had, had cancer. And uh, she was she was helping her. She had a double mastectomy. I mean, it was it was like hard and complicated. And after she was feeling well and she had finished with her treatment and everything, she really wanted to have babies. But she knew that being exposed to all those terrible levels of artificial hormones were going to be very bad for her. So she started thinking of asking her sister to carry a baby for her. And my friend just recommended to talk to me before making that decision. She got pregnant on the second try. Oh. <laughs> so it was amazing. I remember that her OBGYN was in a cruise on, on the Bahamas and uh, he stopped and sent her the order so that she could get progesterone from the very first moment. And she ended up having a perfectly healthy baby girl nine months later. Oh, so, that's a beautiful that's a story, Lupita. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. with that, that with us. And truly, I believe that the natural way is best. And anything that keeps us in touch with the way that, that God intended us to have children, right? With our husbands, <laughs> beautiful couples, making their children together. That uh, anything that we can do to further that and the wonderful work that you do to further that, Lupita, you must have, you, you must have made so many hearts glad. Um, I, I think of all the, not just the couples, but the grandparents and the siblings and the aunts and uncles and so much happiness when a baby's on the way and, and we can actually hold that baby in our arms. So thank you, Lupita. Where can our where can our listeners um, find you online? Well, I think that the easiest way would be just to send me an email. My email is lupitacrms at gmail.com. I'm, I'm going to spell that for you. L-U-P-I-T-A-C-R-M-S at gmail.com. Thank you, Lupita. Thank you. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. 
We have Marie Meany on with us next. She wrote a wonderful book called When Expecting Doesn't Happen, Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope. With her book, she's helped many women who are suffering in this way, many couples, and she joins us today with wonderful advice. Welcome to the show, Marie. Thank you, Christy. Very good to be here. Marie, this, this show we've done, we've dedicated the entire show to the trouble, the, the sad trouble of infertility. It's, uh, this week is National Infertility Awareness Week. And, and it's a very common problem. Uh, by the stats I read are that one in eight couples in America suffer with infertility. I have a friend uh, who works in NAPRO Technologies um, and, and helps and helps uh, infertile couples achieve pregnancy naturally. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work. And also I spoke to uh, my colleague at, at the Catholic Association who's an adoptive mom like I am and we, we talked about adoption. And, and I think these are all very important conversations around infertility about how to resolve the issue and, and and become a become a mother or a father, um, mm-hmm. but infertility itself is a journey, and it's a, it's a it's a state of being, right? That that has all sorts of spiritual um, dimensions, and so that's why we wanted to talk to you about that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so so happy to be here. You wrote this book about infertility, turning infertility into a journey of hope. Is that the kind of hope that you have? Because one day you're you hold a baby in your arms, or it's a different kind of hope, a higher hope. It's hope. I mean, obviously, there's included also that natural hope that at least those couples who 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 don't who think that they can still have children, because of course some unfortunately know that they they will never have. But um, so their hope is included in that. But I think as we go through this journey, many of us don't know whether there's a baby at the end or not, and and we have to navigate this. We can't just focus on that baby, which may never come, but we already have to look at this from a different perspective. And I think it's very important because um, infertility can be excruciatingly painful. Mm -hmm. It's not that way for everybody, but for a lot of people. And, um, and it's there when it's that, you know, it becomes an incredible human tragedy. I mean, it feels like your life is breaking apart. That which would give you so much happiness seems out of reach is certainly out of your control. And anybody telling you, well, you have to rethink your life, you have to set different priorities, it doesn't work that way, because, you know, it's like your heart is breaking over this. So I think you need a, a supernatural perspective to to turn this into a journey that is, is moving you forward and getting you closer to God and giving you greater peace and ultimately to manage to get through this night, whether there's a baby at the end or not. Because life life is uh, sends us difficulties, right? Like, I mean, all of us go through terrible periods mm-hmm. of suffering, Absolutely. uncertainty, Absolutely. periods of despair. We have these terrible obstacles and, and crushing burdens. Recently for me, my father died of ALS. I talk about it a lot on the show. So I talk about all my personal problems on this show. <laughs> so, for sure. Um, but infertility is kind it's kind of like that it's a it's a cross mm-hmm. right that god sends yeah. or allows or permits um yeah, yeah and how do we as christians how do we as christians um shoulder that cross that cross of infertility yeah. i mean it, it, let me just take one step back and say that uh, infertility for a long time was sort of under the radar was going under the radar people weren't aware just how much of a suffering this is and i think simply the fact that this is now acknowledged that people with the suffering are better understood, and that one realizes that this is, you know, this is a heavy suffering. That's not claiming it's the only suffering or the worst suffering in the world, but it's out there as, as, as one of the big ones. And I'm so happy just to have seen over the years as I was going through this journey how much more there is now for couples to turn to and, and, and get support. 
and how it, they're taking seriously. You know, how does how does God uh, help us on this journey? So, other than, than being God and always being there for us, of course, you know, I think there's something particular about great suffering that, that breaks us, where this breaking, which seems so unbearable to us, makes room for God. So as we're at the lowest point and think this can't get any worse and we're not able to, to continue with this any moment without realizing it, God is actually working in us and he meets us in this dark night of the soul um, that he himself went through on the cross, you know, when he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then we see the great saints who've gone through this. So it may feel, you know, we're out at sea and we don't know what's going on and why does God seem so distant perhaps and why is it heartbreaking so much and shouldn't our faith sort of be carrying us through this um, and make it all easy? And and it's not as we, we may think, oh, we're getting something wrong, but, you know, not necessarily. I mean, sometimes it's a good idea to get sort of a therapist, get some psychological help. But the, this this suffering can be tremendous, and um, and God meets us in that darkness, and He wants to be led into that, that great pain, you know? God um, on the cross, Christ on the cross was saying, I thirst, He was thirsting. For, for us, for our love. So he was experiencing this tremendous longing. And what we have, who, who want to have children, we experience a tremendous longing that feels like it's breaking our hearts. So by letting God in, he can on one level meet that longing. He may not give us a baby, but he's going to console us. And, you know, in a certain sense, uh, sorry for putting this that way, but we can hold him accountable. We can say, you know, you said this would be easy, you know, not easy, but this cross would be light. That's what you say. It doesn't say it would be easy, but this cross would be light when you would carry it with us. So we need to feel this. And therefore, to be able to feel this, this means we actually have to go through this mourning process. I found in myself and also in many other people that, you know, you feel like you want to be very strong and heroic in this, and and you're not mourning. You're not doing the actual work of mourning. We speak so much about the importance of mourning when we have a loved one die, like your father. My father died uh, half a year ago. And, um, you know, we're so aware of that today. But also for these kind of things, we have to go through this process so that our heart can let go and be healed and be consoled. But it doesn't mean that's going to go fast or that it's going to be easy or that it's not going to be painful, unfortunately. So you're talking about a very a very large spiritual truth about, uh, it's about infertility, but it's about every kind of human suffering, right? Like it's, um, mm-hmm. God leads us out into the desert, and mm-hmm. then we have to wander through the desert and, until we can mm-hmm. reach that, that other side, right? That promised land mm-hmm. where, where, where God's, consolation is and and the joy of his of his consolation but the wandering itself in the desert is part of that that journey is that journey has its value right it's the journey has that spiritual component that spiritual greatness to it um yeah i wonder if without suffering many people would never encounter god right because it's it's only through that that deep i think that's when we most long that's most that's when we most call out god's name and when we when we are wandering in the desert that's when we most look for him yeah it, it, it we have that option it's true i mean it, there's also the possibility of hardening our hearts of rebelling mm-hmm. you know because we're so crushed by suffering but um but i think it's true it gets one it, it 
it's that thing which gets one to the point where one feels so desperate, even if one doesn't believe in God, that people then, then turn to him and, and, and let him act. So, yes, I mean, um, so often I think, isn't it, when we look back in our lives and certain things that we think were absolute disasters um, and low points really turned out to be very important and fruitful. And um, and I remember reading the beautiful conversion story of, of uh, Roy Schumann, who was a Jewish agnostic, and um, he had this mystical experience of God, where he was falling into heaven, as he says, and he said suddenly he was looking at his life, and he saw that all those moments that he thought were just terrible, absolutely awful, were tremendously precious in the eyes of God, and very, very important for his life. And those things that he was proud of, that he thought, you know, he'd achieved something, really, you know, God didn't particularly care about his diplomas and professional achievements. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. You know, in in these days, this is a very countercultural thing that we're talking about, right? Um, Mm -hmm. um, Infertility, even, okay, you and I think about infertility as a a married couple having normal relations, intimate relations Mm -hmm. of their marital, of the marital type. A -hmm. baby doesn't come within a year, right? And that's that's what we call infertility. But nowadays, infertility in our culture is becoming more the idea that if you if you want a baby, even if you're not in a marriage, if you're, even if you're not having the kind of sex that would lead to a baby, um, or even if you're past 48, if you're a woman, for instance, yeah. um, then that's kind that's infertility too. They call that social infertility. In other words, mm. just the longing for a child, just wanting to have a child and that you can't produce naturally, um, yeah. is infertility. Now. It's, it's, I think that's a very sad thing that's happening in our society because it's, it's making the child an object, um, something that, uh, like a produced object, right? Like you could, we'll, we'll somehow produce a child for this, for this desire of this person who wants a child. But you're talking about something so radically different. You're talking about acceptance of a, na- of a, of a process, uh, of something that's, that's natural or maybe the result of, of, of a disease or a, a, a disorder. But still, something that comes to us that then we ought to accept, possibly, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, maybe maybe exactly. we can try to solve it through NAPRO, or we can try maybe yeah. turn to adoption. But that we don't have all these all these enorm- we don't have a thousand different options open open to us to solve that longing. Things like IVF and things like surrogacy and you know the production of children just to solve our longing. Yeah. What? Tell me how. Yeah. Tell me how you think about that in a spiritual sense. Well, I think you know the last thing you want to hear really when you're going through this, when you're when you're your worst, is to say we well, just have to accept it because that's the one thing you can't accept. You feel like you know, anything just lift us from me, and you're always hoping you know the next month is going to bring that baby. And um, so I realized it was a big turning point for me. It seems so simple, and it's something when it's hurt so often for other things in the spiritual life. But I don't know. It took that sort of <laughs> moment for me to realize, you know. I can't accept now what it means for me to be infertile in 10, 20, 30 years from now. I can't expect what it'll be for me when others are having grandchildren and I don't have any children or grandchildren. But I can't because I'm just given the grace for the moment. I'm not given the grace for 30 years from now. I'll be given that grace when I get there. So all God is asking for me is accepting the present moment. This is the grace he's given me to given me to to do to be able to shoulder that. And if I say, well, just this second, I can accept it for this second. I can't even accept it for an hour from now or a week from now or let alone a month from now. But just for now, somehow, I found that made it tremendously feasible because it was not just breaking it down into individual moments, but it was sort of I was in direct touch with God 
you know, for every second that I, that I happened to think about it, you know, that it was there. And that was actually part of the mourning process without necessarily my realizing it. Because, you know, mourning means I'm accepting the fact that this is, this is very painful, this is there, and I don't know whether I'll have children or not, but I'm not going to worry in a way. I shouldn't suffer now through the agony of realizing at 50 I don't have any children because now I'm whatever I am, 30, 35, 40, wherever we are. And I found that was so, so helpful, and that turned it really into a journey rather than sort of being stuck in a place where you're just kind of arguing with the God and, you know, wailing and and being just miserable. But it's, it's true, um, uh, Gracie, that we are so used to wanting things resolved and resolved quickly. And IVF is given to us as the solution. And if you're not going that path and your friends and family who may not be sharing your values or your faith, think, well, then it's your fault that you're not having babies. Why not Why not do IVF? Apart from the fact, you know, that IVF doesn't necessarily work. I think at most you have like 30-something percent of, of actually getting a baby out of this. But also people who've gone through it have talked about this problem. There's, there's a, an article I mentioned in my in my book, and I found it very interesting by a certain lady called Helen James, and she was speaking about IVF ultimately as an enabler because she was just going crazy about not having children, and so she went the whole route with IVF, and then her husband was really suffering under this, and, and then they had to have an abortion of one of the children that was ill, and then she wanted desperately some more children, and this time it wasn't working out for IVF, so they were looking for a surrogate mother, then they finally found a surrogate mother, and then her husband said he couldn't do this anymore, and he was getting a divorce. And sorry, no, surrogate mother, I got that wrong. She was having, she did manage to have the children. They just had got eggs, donor eggs. That was it. And so she was pregnant and then she aborted those children that she wanted so much because she couldn't imagine raising three oh, children. No. And then she said, here I am. And my life is broken. And I'm surrounded by broken relationships, not just with my husband, with my friends. And I would have needed to confront this earlier, that in me, that was driving me. And, you know, of course, I'm very happy to have this one son from through IVF, but this is, this is madness. And, you know, thinking that all our desires should be fulfilled at whatever cost uh, turns out to be a very dangerous temptation that can make us a lot more miserable than than we than we could ever imagine. Marie, that's what a what a shocking story and I have a story like that in my family too, an, an IVF story that turned into a very sad divorce and 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 I'm I'm not surprised really because um mm-hmm. to go down that path of well there's so many things that go into it, right? Tremendous hormonal alterations mm-hmm. and anxiety mm-hmm. and 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 cost and it just goes on and on mm-hmm. and it takes a, a huge toll. Infertility takes mm-hmm. a toll also um, even if we they don't we don't go down that path. It takes a toll on yeah. the marriage and I'm sure you address yeah. that in, mm-hmm. in your work. Um, finding God together in that in that sad space yeah. is also a challenge, right? Like to be on the same yeah. path towards God when you're suffering that cross. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, normally when we get married we sort of we embrace the other with his and her fertility. So you know, we were open to life, and now we have to choose each other again every day, which we're supposed to do anyway. We choose each other again every day to make our marriage work in front of God, and, and this time we have to choose each other with our infertility. And that's an amazing thing to be able to tell to your spouse, you know, I love you with your infertility, and, and I choose you again and again. And even though that may mean we don't, we don't have any children. So, yeah, I mean, it's the, the marriage is can definitely get under a lot of stress through all of this because it's so painful and it can either go in the direction of the people growing together or the people growing apart. But I think so much of it is sort of an awareness of how we process this differently, how you know men feel very helpless in the situation to see their wives so sad and mourning and 
they want to go out there and fix it, and they can't, and it's deeply frustrating. And the women can feel alone because their husbands are not so emotionally um, expressive, and Matt might think that they're not really suffering when they are. And so it's just so important to you know try to, despite the pain, but precisely because of the pain, to reach out and tell the other what one needs. You know, just tell to the husband. Sorry, I'm just crying, but, you know, this is doing me tremendous good if you're just listening to me. Just listen to me, whale. And, you know, could you please come with me to the next doctor's appointment? Because it's so painful sitting in this doctor's waiting room with all the pregnant women, and I'm not. And vice versa, you know, for the husband to tell to his wife, so I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't, can't really talk about it, but, you know, this is weighing on me too. It can become something really beautiful and, and make your marriage grow. And we've been promised to the sacrament of... Uh, help from God, who allows also this to to turn into something beautiful, something beautiful for God. Well, Marie, thank you so much for joining us today and for your wonderful, wonderful words on, on the cross of infertility. Where can our listeners find your work? Um, so it's published by Emmaus Press, so you can get it there directly. And then, of course, at the usual sort of websites that I'm not so excited about, but they're just very practical, you know, like Amazon, of course, you can find it there as well. (laughs) Okay, and the book is called When Expecting Doesn't Happen, Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope. Thank you, Marie Meany. Thank you so much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. The fourth Sunday of Easter each year is called Good Shepherd Sunday, because on this day the church focuses on a part of the 10th chapter of St. John's Gospel, in which Jesus reveals the relationship he has with each of his faithful followers. Jesus says about himself, I am the Good Shepherd, and indicates how he shepherds us. His faithful followers respond to him with the words of Psalm 100, We are his people, the sheep of his flock, with the more famous words of Psalm 23 that we'll pray this Sunday. The Lord is my shepherd, I want, I lack for nothing. We mark this truth in the heart of the Easter season each year because it's the heart of our Easter joy. With the risen Lord Jesus as our shepherd, we truly have it all. But it's key for us to believe and live by these famous words of the Responsorial Psalm. By them we publicly confess as Catholics that our true treasure is Jesus, that if we have him but don't have anything else in the world, we still recognize how rich we are. One of the prayers I've been saying for decades is St. Ignatius of Loyola's famous Sushipe, in which the first Jesuits, like Pope Francis, and generations ever since have prayed, Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I have and call my own, whatever I have or hold, you have given me. I return it all to you and surrender it wholly to be governed by your will. Give me only your love and your grace, which are enough for me, and I ask for nothing more. This prayer teaches us something very important about being a good sheep of the Good Shepherd. We recognize that Jesus' love and grace are enough for us. In the midst of a consumerist society in which we're bombarded with advertisements that pretend that we'll only be happy if we obtain what they're pitching, that we'll be fulfilled only if we have money and houses, fame and fortune, power and position, 
We focus instead on the Good Shepherd's love and grace. We confess that what Jesus provides is far more fundamental to happiness in this world and is absolutely essential to eternal felicity with him in the eternal sheepfold. Throughout the Good Shepherd Discourse, Jesus gives us in the 10th chapter of St. John's Gospel, roughly a third of which we read each year at Sunday Mass. Jesus reveals how he seeks to shepherd us and relate to us. First, he calls his own sheep by name, and the sheep hear and recognize his voice. He wants to have a personal relationship with each of us. He knows us. He cares about us. Good sheep and the good shepherd enter into this mind-blowing, I-thou relationship with him, responding to his call and calling out to him by name in return. Second, he guides or leads us. After calling us by name, he leads us out. He goes ahead of us, and we follow him. He leads us in right paths for his namesake. He takes us beside the refreshing waters of baptism toward the verdant pastures of heaven. He wants to lead us on a journey, an adventure, a lifetime pilgrimage. He was the way doesn't merely point that path out, but accompanies us along it. Good sheep follow the good shepherd's guidance and walk in his ways. They recognize his voice in the midst of the cacophony of worldly gurus competing for their attention and follow him rather than those competing voices. Third, he feeds us. He prepares a table for us, seeking to feed us in every way he knows we need. He feeds us materially as he gives us today our daily bread. He feeds our soul with his words. For it not on bread alone does man live, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. He feeds us ultimately on his body and blood in the Eucharist, the food of everlasting life. Good sheep are not only grateful for this threefold nutrition, but hunger for it. <clears throat> Fourth, he protects us. Jesus tells us that there are thieves and marauders who are seeking to fleece, milk, kill, cook, and consume us. Against those who come only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus sets himself as our protector, as the gate to the sheepfold, so that essentially in order to get to us, they first need to go through him. He leaves the 99 behind and comes after us when we're in danger. No one can take them out of my hand, he affirms. Good sheep of the good shepherd stay in those powerful, saving, protective grips. Fifth, he freely gives his life for us. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, he tells us. No one takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. His protection goes so far as to die so that we might live. This is why we can act on his words, be not afraid. That's why Psalm 23 exclaims, Even though I walk in the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For he's at my side with his rod and his staff to comfort me. Good sheep of the good shepherd are grateful for this protection and remain in those hands. Lastly, he says, I give them eternal life. The good shepherd leads us to the eternal sheepfold, the verdant pastures where you set a table before us and desires to give us everlasting repose. Good sheep of the good shepherd have a deep hunger for heaven, to be with the good shepherd and his other sheep forever. They seek to come to grasp eternal life even now, because eternal life is knowing him, the good shepherd, whom God the Father has sent. So Jesus, the good shepherd, wants to enter into a lifelong existential dialogue with each of us as he calls, leads, feeds, protects, and gives his life for us so that we might have eternal life. And in doing so, he seeks to transform his good sheep into good shepherds of others who care for others personally, who call them for God, who guide them in his path, who nourish them, protect them, and even give their life for them so that they might come to know Jesus and receive from him the gift of eternal life and love. We see this in Jesus' beautiful dialogue with St. Peter after the resurrection, when Jesus asked him three times whether Peter loved him. And after Peter's affirmative responses replied, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter's love for Jesus would be expressed in how he cares for and protects the good shepherd's beloved sheep.
One application of good sheep becoming good shepherds is meant to be the priesthood, which is why every year since 1963, the church has celebrated on Good Shepherd Sunday the World Day of Prayer for Vocations, especially priestly vocations. As we prepare for this 60th annual World Day of Prayer for Vocations, we unite ourselves to the Pope and to Catholics throughout the world in praying to God the Father, the Harvest Master, to send out laborers, shepherds after the heart of his son into the fields. Priests are the Good Shepherd's indispensable instruments to help us all recognize our divine vocation. That the Good Shepherd is calling each of us to be saints and help us to discern how he's intending us to do that, whether in marriage, the priesthood, religious life, or other ecclesial vocations. Priests guide Jesus' flock one-on-one in the ministry of mercy and the confessional, spiritual direction and counseling, and guide the entire flock in their work as pastors, the Latin word for shepherd. Priests feed Jesus' flock with Jesus himself and the Holy Eucharist, but they also nourish us with his holy word and the teaching of the church. Priests seek to protect the flock of Christ from what Jesus calls in this Sunday's gospel, thieves and marauders who would seek to harm them. This involves a defense not just from the devil, his empty promises and evil works, but also from all those earthly gurus who try to lead people from Jesus in the narrow path that leads to life. Priests give their lives for Christ and his flock, giving up having wives and families of their own to serve Christ's family, surrendering their earning potential to live in poverty or simplicity of life, to show everywhere how to depend on God's providence and where true wealth is that the world can't give or rob. They also forsake their autonomy, freely to obey Jesus through their bishops and religious superiors, just like the first apostles obeyed Christ. This form of daily martyrdom culminates sometimes in actual martyrdom. Priests, finally, by their eschatological living, point us ultimately toward the eternal life that Christ desires to give us through them. The eternal life that begins in the baptism they administer is meant to grow through coming to know Christ better here on earth into eternity. Jesus is the good shepherd who never leaves his flock untended. He continues to call, guide, feed, protect, give his life, and lead us to the life to the full through them. So we prepare to listen to the good shepherd's voice announced through their accents, speaking to us in this Sunday's gospel. We ask him to make us extremely grateful for the table he has prepared for us and for the priests that uniquely make this great banquet of life possible. We ask him to make us ever more attentive to his voice, speaking to us through the church, so that we might know how to follow him through his popes and priests all the way to the eternal sheepfold in the verdant pastures of heaven. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 